For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at how Christians are to be the salt and light of the earth. Let's join guest speaker Pastor Miles Benedictus with a message entitled, Salt and Light. Good morning. It is a true blessing to be with you all this morning and I commend you for coming to church on a day like this. You know, where I come from down in San Diego, when people wake up on a Sunday morning and it's drizzling like this, one of them will turn to their spouse and say, honey, let's not go to church today. <laughs> why, why not? It, it's pouring outside. <laughs> and then they'll, they'll turn on the news and a grave-looking anchorman will go, we are ready with team coverage of Stormwatch for <laughs> Stormageddon 2015. <laughs> We're going to take you now to East County where John is out in the weather. John, how's it looking out there? I, I, got, I got hit by a raindrop. <laughs> and a, a leaf just fell from that tree. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, stay at home. Stay at home. <laughs> you may or may not know this. San Diego actually holds the record, truly, for the most car accidents in a single hour. We don't know how to drive in the rain at all. I can <laughs> attest to that. It, it is a phenomenal thing. So, so I, I'm glad that you are here. You know, being invited to come and speak at a church is a real privilege and a blessing. And uh, I was up here back in February um, over the weekend for um, Thanksgiving. Or I'm sorry, Thanksgiving. We're in, we're in November. I'm thinking about Thanksgiving. But back uh, right around St. Valentine's Day, uh, some of you may remember I was up here then. Being invited to come back for a second time is a huge blessing. <laughs> And you sometimes wonder, why are they inviting me back? Did I do a really good job the last time? Or was Pastor Ross saying, you know, let's, let's give him another try. Yeah. <laughs> give him another, a second chance, a second chance. So whatever it is, if it's a second chance, I'll take it, I'll take it. I'm grateful. I'm super glad to be up here with you. Uh, I had the blessing of flying up yesterday into San Francisco at SFO, and I have some friends who live down in the South Bay. I went and visited a friend of mine who's pastoring Calvary Chapel Livermore, just started pastoring there about six months ago. He had planted a church in Waterford, Ireland, and raised up a team of people to take it over, a pastor and Irishman to take it over, and now God's doing a great work there in Livermore. Uh, a friend of mine who was actually a roommate of mine when I was at Bible College about 17 years years ago. He just planted a church a little over a year ago in Walnut Creek, which is actually where my mom is from. She grew up there. And so that church is doing really well. A friend of mine from uh, when I was serving at Calvary Costa Mesa has, has planted a church down in Berkeley, Dave Escalante. And you, there's just a lot of awesome things that God is doing here in the Bay Area. It's amazing because for many years, there's these pockets of places here in the U.S. where Christian writers have written that, you know, it's just really hard to do any work and reach people with the gospel there. And, you know, the Bay Area has been on those lists, and yet God's doing an awesome thing here in the Bay Area. Amen? It's really, really great to see all the, the cool things that are going on here that God is doing. And uh, I'm excited about what's happening. 
And I can tell you that God's doing some great things down in Southern California as well. I know it's hard to believe, um, but he, he's there too. And um, I'm a native Californian, born and raised. Any native Californians? God bless you. If you're not from around here, God bless you too. I mean, we're happy you're here. I, I do, I'm a little biased though, and maybe you can relate with this. I think California is the greatest state. Amen? I think it's awesome. Which really bugged me a few months ago when I stumbled upon a news article about a group of people that were putting around a petition to try and get a ballot initiative pushed forward to divide California into six states. Did you hear about this? They want to divide it into six states. Now, I understand. We all want to get rid of L.A. Um, but divided into six states, I'm thinking, what, what are you doing? This is California. This is the eighth largest economy in the world. This is California. You don't, don't do that to California. And you know what I think the problem is? I think we need a better slogan. You know, we have a slogan. Eureka. We need a better slogan. Are you with me? <laughs> Texas has don't mess with Texas. That's a slogan. Eureka. Don't mess with Texas. Now, Eureka's not as bad as Idaho. If you're from Idaho, God bless you. I'm sorry. Great potatoes. Eureka beats great potatoes. New Hampshire. Live free or die. Now that's a slogan. So I am proposing some new slogans. You ever looked at the continental United States and it looks like a big animal? Maine's up there at the head. Down there in the southeast, you got Florida as a foot. Texas has got another foot. California's in a very vulnerable position. <laughs> And my hometown, San Diego, very vulnerable. But, you know, going along with that, I, I have some ideas. So, California, America's backside. <laughs> Probably not the best. We, it's better than great potatoes. But, uh, <laughs> number two, California, keeping America's pants up since 1850. That could work. Number three is my favorite. California, we got your back, America. You like, I, see? That's what I'm pushing for. You think we could get it on a ballot initiative? Let's go, let's go. We'll, we'll get petitions going. Well, as I said, I flew back up here uh, in, back in February, and uh, my wife was able to join with me. I surprised her. She thought I was just going to fly up here on Saturday, which was Valentine's Day, and instead I surprised her when she got home from work on Friday, and I said, hey, we're flying up to the Bay Area, and uh, her sister lives in Half Moon Bay, so we spent the time there, and great time. My wife's a nurse. She uh, works in the ICU down at Scripps in San Diego, hospital down in San Diego. We have four kids. Our oldest, Ethan, he just turned seven years old, and and he's our thinker or our Lego engineer. He, he calls himself a master builder now. Actually, I think he's a master destroyer because everything he asks me to build, he destroys. So. But uh, Ethan, he's that thinker engineer. And then Addison, she is about to turn six. She's our artist. Evangeline, she's about to turn four. She's our antagonist uh, or... <laughs> We call her our personality. Lately, she's had a joke. She's been telling this virtually every single day. And maybe you can do it along with This is Evangeline's joke. You can do it with me. Knock, knock. 
The interrupting cow. Moo, that's what she does. It's great. And so now my wife and I, when she says knock, knock, we just go moo, and she, she loves it. And then Elliot, he's our youngest. He's two and a half years old. He's our athlete. He loves soccer, loves to kick the ball. Problem is, he loves to kick the door. He loves to kick the wall. He loves to kick the dog. If you're not careful, he'll kick you. So we're working on that. I pastor a church in North San Diego County, about 35 minutes outside of downtown, called Cross Connection Church. Uh, I grew up at the church. It's called Calvary Chapel of Escondido for about 27 years. We changed the name to Cross Connection. Our vision is to live life in connection with God, one another, and the world through Jesus, to bring people into connection with God through the cross of Christ. And so if you want to connect with us online, lifeinconnection.com. You can follow along with what's happening down there. And I also, as uh, Adam said, I, I teach at the Bible College. I've been teaching in Marietta for about 11 years now, teaching primarily the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and also a class on church planting, because as he said, I, I am one of the directors of the Calvary Church Planting Network. We have hundreds of men being raised up to go out and plant churches, and we definitely need more churches planted, because we live, as we all recognize, in a world that desperately needs the grace and goodness of Christ. We live in a world that is dark and needs the light of Christ. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. So if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins a passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. Very creative name. It was a sermon that was given on a mount. <laughs> We're going to work on our creative names. But the Sermon on the Mount... Very powerful passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We're going to look at the opening verses of Matthew chapter 5. Would you mind standing with me as I read through this passage at my church? We stand for the word of God and sit for the word of the preacher. So, <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he taught them. He opened his mouth, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God or sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it, the earth, be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Father, I pray that we would be a people 
that are a bright shining light. A city set on a hill. It has been said at various times in history, God, that our nation was like a city set on a hill. It is that because we are a nation or have been in times past a nation that acknowledged and recognized that we're one nation under you. And so God, I pray that you would shine brightly through us, your church. Clear away anything that might hinder your light from shining magnificently through us. Speak to us this morning, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all those that agreed said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I love the way that this passage of Scripture opens. The four words of Matthew chapter 5 that open there, and seeing the multitudes. And seeing the multitudes. Jesus was well aware of the things that were going on around him. He was keyed in on, he was observant about the happenings around him. Well, I have to confess that I'm not always very observant about the things that are going around about me. Maybe you can relate to this. This happens quite frequently to me, having four small kids, and it happens a lot of times on Monday mornings. I, I have Monday off. My wife, she'll normally be down at the hospital working a 12-hour shift, so I have the four kids, and many times I can get absorbed in something, locked in on what I'm thinking about or doing or reading in the moment. And it, and it seems like from such a far distance, I begin to hear this repetitive noise. Dad, 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 dad. Dad, 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 what, 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 what? Or guys, you can relate with this. It's maybe when you're driving or sitting there on the couch just somewhere else and you hear, honey, 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 Miles, you, you, what, what, what? Where were you? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm back now. I, I think it was a good trip. It was good. I'm, I'm back now. Or I'm ashamed to admit this one, and you, you may be able to identify. I only have about a 10, 15-minute commute from my office to my home, and I'm amazed how many times this happens, that as I'm pulling into the garage of my house, I don't remember the last 10 to 15 minutes whatsoever. I have no clue what happened on the drive home. I'm just, you know, right now there's this debate going on. You may have seen this. It's actually, since I came into San Francisco here driving up, I saw these cars everywhere. Tesla, Model S. You guys know the Tesla Model S. Did you know that that car now can drive itself? Has full autopilot. You, you, you set it up, take your hands off the wheel, feet off the pedal. This sounds awesome to me, but everybody else seems like, why do we can't have unmanned vehicles? I'm telling you, 90% of the cars on the 101 are unmanned at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Truly. We miss so much. To illustrate this, I have a quick video that I brought up I want you guys to watch. Honestly, how many of you missed the moonwalking bear the first time? Okay, all right. Here. Did anybody miss it the second time? <laughs> I hope not. We miss things. We, we fail to see so often. If you're taking notes, you, you may want to just write this down. We see only what we're looking for. We see only what we're looking for. And that video illustrates that point so perfectly. I think it's only about 5% of the people that watch that video see the bear the first time. 
we see only what we're looking for. And when you're told, look for the passing, for those in the white shirts, then, then that's what you're focused on. And we get so keyed in on things that we miss things. And that's why I love these four words. And seeing the multitudes. Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw the things that other people missed. There's a great story that illustrates this. It's found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. You can turn there if you'd like. Just Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 19. As you're turning there, Jesus is, in this passage, he's moving up to Jerusalem for the last time that he would go to Jerusalem before his crucifixion. So he's coming from the northern part of the nation of Israel and coming south towards Jerusalem. And he, he enters a city called Jericho. And it says in this passage, Luke 19:1, that he entered and passed through Jericho, which means he's not planning on staying there. He's on a mission. And he's He's just being bombarded by people around him, multitudes all around him, and they're all asking for things. Come to my house, heal my child, cast this demon out, all these different things that are going on. And there was a man in the city of Jericho that wanted to see Jesus. His name was Zacchaeus. If you've ever taught children's ministry, you might remember Zacchaeus because we sing a song in children's ministry. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Anybody remember that song? Okay, good. Thank you. So what happens here is he wants to see Jesus, but he's short. He's a wee little man. He can't see him. And there's so many people around Jesus that he, he runs ahead of where he, he thinks Jesus is going to be passing by, climbs up into a sycamore tree, and he just wants to see him. And as Jesus passes by, Luke 19 tells us that he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from there for today I must stay at your house. And everybody that was there went, what? Because Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector. Everybody go, boo, yes, yes. He was a rich tax collector. The passage says, when they heard this, they were all upset and they said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Not tax collector, sinner. <laughs> And Zacchaeus stood, verse 8, and he said, Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For, verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We see only what we're looking for. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He was a lost man, and Jesus saw him with everything else going on around him, distracting him. He saw the one that no one else saw because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Mark's gospel, chapter 9, it says, In seeing the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and they were scattered. He saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them. And I love that this passage here in Matthew opens and seeing the multitudes back in Matthew chapter five. So in response to seeing the multitudes, it says he, Jesus, went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Why did Jesus do this? You know, there's a lot of churches, a lot of denominations, a lot of organizations connected to the church today that are really emphasizing, let's get out into the world. The multitudes need help. They need health care. They need water, clean water in this place. They need this sort of help. They need humanitarian aid in all these different places in Africa and the Middle East. And all that is true. And here were so many issues and so many problems that the multitudes had around Jesus. Why would he depart from the multitudes and not just address the immediate concern? 
Why would he go and sit down with his disciples and have basically a men's retreat? What is he doing? Well, Jesus, he saw the multitudes. And he was moved with compassion for them. And he came to seek and to save that which is lost. But he also knew that he would only be here for a short time. And that if his church was going to reach the multitudes with the love and grace of God, then he was going to have to spend some time with his disciples because they, like us, they miss so much. They fail to see the multitudes. And so what Jesus is going to do as he sits with his disciples is he is going to try and help them to see. Again, if you're taking notes, point number two, Jesus wants to adjust our focus. He wants to adjust our focus. How many of you know that focus is really important? You know, it was about a month and a half ago, I was on Facebook, I'll confess. And as I was there, a friend of mine who is a pastor in Ireland, he had posted this article about this new device, this laser printing cutting machine called Glowforge. And had this video, and I watched this video, and I was like, this is awesome. And then later on that week, I, we were at my parents' house, and my dad, he builds all kinds of great things with steel and wood, and he built pretty much all the furniture in our office, at our, our church, and in my office. And so I said, hey, you got to watch this video. And I show him this thing, and it's this laser cutter, and it goes and cuts things. And he looked at me, he goes, we got to get one of those. I said, yeah, right? Let's do it. So, of course, we, he paid half, I paid half. We're waiting for the laser cutter to come. This thing cuts through a half inch of plywood with laser. It's, it's sweet, that's right. <laughs> but you know the amazing thing about it? It's 40 watts. Like the 40-watt light bulb, it's 40 watts. How does it do that? It's focused. It's focused light. Light that's focused is powerful. And we need to have our focus adjusted. And so when Jesus goes up in the mountain, seeing the multitude, he takes his disciples up there because he's going to reach the multitudes of the world through these guys and those that they will reach us. And so he takes them up there into the mountain to adjust their focus, to shift their focus. And I believe that the words that Jesus speaks here are intended to adjust their focus. Now this passage of scripture, verse three and on through verse 11 they are referred to by Bible teachers as the Beatitudes. And when you hear that word Beatitude, you wonder, what exactly is a Beatitude? I mean, is that an attitude that I'm supposed to be? <laughs> well, no, not necessarily. Actually, what a Beatitude is, and that word there, blessed, is the key phrase in a Beatitude. That word blessed is sometimes translated, oh, how happy. So a Beatitude is an equation of blessedness or an algorithm for happiness. It is the path to happiness. Now, we live in the United States of America. This is core and foundational to us because we live in a nation where we highly value the philosophy of the pursuit of happiness. And so Jesus here is saying, this is the algorithm to happiness. This is the equation for blessedness. This is the path to joy. And so if that's the case, we Americans especially should key in on this and say, well, what does Jesus have to say? And I believe that Jesus is an authority on this subject, and so he has something to say. God incarnate is saying to you and to me, this is the path to blessedness. Now, 
every single person alive has a philosophy or a path to blessedness. And in 21st century America, and really 21st century Western world, developed nations, the philosophy or the path to blessedness or happiness looks something like this. The path to happiness is a good education. The path to happiness is a good career. The path to happiness is a good spouse and a nice house and 2.1 children, because that's replacement rate, and a dog and two cars and all those sort of, that's the path to happiness. That's how we get to happiness is those sort of things. And so Jesus is giving to us a path to happiness. So notice what he says. Blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. That's absurd. <laughs> that is insane. Blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And there's something in the words of Jesus there that creates in us what is called cognitive dissonance. What is cognitive dissonance? Well, cognitive dissonance is when someone holds something up like this and says, this book is blue. And in your mind, you're looking at this book and you go, no, no, that book is not blue. So your eyes say, no, that book is black, but your ears are hearing this book is blue. And here's the, where it gets even more crazy. Researchers have done this. They take a group of people like this and they tell every single person except for one, I want you to agree with my statement when I say about this book, the color. And so they go, this book is blue. And everybody goes, yeah, that book is blue. And they say, what color is this book? They go, it's blue. And the one person in there that doesn't know that everybody else is in on it, after a few minutes, they start to question themselves as to whether or not they're right, but there's a cognitive dissonance going on. It's a totally wrong psychological twisting game that people play with people. But they do it all the time. Cognitive dissonance. Why would Jesus want to create cognitive dissonance in his disciples? Because he wants to change their focus. We live after the course of this world, the the sway of this world, which the Bible says is under the sway of one called the wicked one. And he has seduced us into believing that the path to happiness is purely temporal, this world. And Jesus comes to his disciples and says, no, I'm, I, need to sh I need to change your focus. I need to alter your focus so that you can be what I want you to be. I need to refocus you so you can be a light, a laser to a world that's in darkness. And so he does this by saying absurd things. Blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. He goes on, oh, how happy are those who are mourning, sorrowful, deeply sorrowful. And every one of us say, that's not true. It's not a happy place to be, to be sorrowful. Oh, how happy are the meek. Now, meek, sometimes we don't use that word so often, especially living in the United States of America, because we don't highly value meekness. We highly value assertiveness and a commanding and demanding spirit and mindset and having a, a, a high self-esteem, which is really biblical, or it's a, you know, secular speak for pride, what the Bible would call it. So we want to emphasize that. You need to be assertive and demanding and commanding if you're going to get anywhere in this society. And Jesus says, no, 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 quite the opposite. Oh, how happy are the meek. It's the antithesis of assertive and commanding and demanding. So he says, oh, how happy are the meek. He says, oh, how happy are those who starve. And all of us know, well, that's not true. What are you trying to do, Jesus? Well, he's trying to shift our focus so that we can become more useful to his kingdom. 
And so he says, blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. What exactly does that mean? Well, he's speaking about poverty of spirit. What is poverty of spirit? Well, it's the realization of your total and complete insufficiency. That you have nothing. You're completely poverty stricken. Now, researchers have been identifying, especially for the last 15 years, so the beginning of the 21st century, researchers have been identifying a, a major cultural shift in American culture where people are no longer identifying themselves as religious or Christian, in fact, there was a huge survey that came out from Pew Research in 2008. They do it every single year called the Religious Identification Survey. And in that survey, they showed numerically, they showed by research that the amount of Americans that are identifying as Christian is decreasing. On the heels of that, Time Magazine and other groups came out with all kinds of stuff about it. I believe it was Newsweek or Time that came out with a, a cover story, The Death of Christianity. It was in about April or March, March, April of 2008. I have it in my office. The Death of Christianity. And we're seeing this continual slide down. People are no longer religious. The funny thing is, is both that survey and many other sense are showing that what Americans identify as today instead of religious is spiritual. So you have a conversation with someone about faith or religion and they go, well, I'm not very religious, I'm spiritual. <laughs> and you go, what does that mean? <laughs> Whoa, spiritual. That's like someone saying, I'm Batman. You're like, okay, all right. Well, Bruce, great to make your acquaintance, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> so what is that? What is that? Well, really, when you start to peel back the layers and you talk with people, and I engage with people on this all the time, and you start to peel back the layers and you talk with them, you realize what that means is they, they acknowledge there's something bigger than them. They simply acknowledge that, you know, looking at everything going on, I know what science says about this and that, but there's something bigger. You ever heard anybody say something along those lines that kind of allude to, there's something bigger. So how do spiritual people who simply acknowledge that there's something bigger come in contact with that bigger something? Well, through all kinds of different ways. Some people choose hallucinogenic drugs. Seriously, why is there such a push towards the legalization of rec recreational use of marijuana? Our friends to the north, Oregon and Washington, California's next, just get ready. Humboldt is like getting ready, right? <laughs> So, so why? Well, a spiritual experience. Some people, they come in contact with that spirit. This is when they come in contact or engage with that spiritual experience, that's called worship. It's a different form of worship, but it's worship. And some people come in contact with it through going out into the wilderness and hiking, and then they come to a place like the Grand Canyon. Have you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon? There's a recognition when you stand there, I am little. That is grand canyon. Some people engage with this feeling of there being something bigger by jumping out of a plane with cloth attached to you. And they have an adrenaline rush and they go, I feel so connected to something bigger. But here's the amazing thing that Jesus is revealing to us here by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's bringing us into the acknowledgement that you can never genuinely connect with spirituality until you recognize your complete lack of it. You cannot come into contact with, engagement with, connection with true spirituality until you realize that you are poverty-stricken of spirit. And, and you know, we, we don't seek until we're poor. 
If you think you have everything, you're not going to look for anything. But when you come to the place where you realize that you are poverty-stricken in spirit, then you start to seek, and those that seek shall find. And so this is the entry point, Jesus says. You see, I think we all would agree that the experience of poverty, the experience of the condition of mourning or being sorrowful, the experience of the condition of being brought to a place of nothingness, meekness, the experience of the condition of hungering and thirsting are not happy experiences. And that's the point. Jesus is not saying that the experience of poverty or mourning or meekness or starvation is happy. But notice the key word in every one of these B attitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who's the comforter? Well, the Bible reveals the Holy Spirit of God. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of earth, or the, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, the condition of experiencing poverty of spirit or mourning or meekness or hungering or thirsting for righteousness, that's not a happy condition, but that is the step to get to ultimate joy. And so point number three, if you're taking notes, our focus must be on the ends more than the means. Our focus must be on the ends more than the means. Our tendency is to zero in on the means. This education is a means to happiness. This spouse is a means to happiness. This job is a means to happiness. This 401k is a means to happiness. The problem is, is that that ultimately, those temporal things ultimately fail. You lose the house, you lose the job, you lose the spouse maybe, and you lose your joy. And we're confronted with all kinds of people in this nation that is given to the pursuit of happiness that are unhappy not only are we the most wealthy nation in the world, as GDP goes, but we also are the nation that has the highest per capita use of anti-anxiety and depressive drugs. Why? Because it's not working. Our pursuit of happiness is not working. Because those things that we seek for, that we think will bring happiness, they, they ultimately don't. I had a joyful experience back in the end of July we paid our last payment on our family vehicle. Yay. I don't have to pay that, that $406 a month to Chase Bank. And then on October 2nd, I get a phone call from my wife. I've just been in an accident. I'm okay, but I've just been in an accident. And then about four hours later, I get a call from our insurance company. Sorry, we've already decided we're going to total your vehicle. My happiness went from... Happy to unhappy, really quickly. And so we need a focus shift. Our focus must be on the ends more than the means. God wants to shift our understanding. And so he says, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And it causes a cognitive dissonance in us. Oh, how happy are those who mourn and those who are meek and those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness but we all need to come through this process to engage with true spirituality and to be useful for his kingdom. And, and you know what this is when you have this experience of recognizing your total spiritual depravity or weakness or loss or lack? We call it in modern layman's terms, a midlife crisis. 
What is a midlife crisis? Well, it is that point in a person's life where they realize that everything they've been working so hard to lay hold of and maintain is rubbish. You know, the greatest midlife crisis recorded for us in the Bible has to do with a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter nine. Saul of Tarsus had given his entire life to connecting with God through the Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee among the Jews, which was a hyper-conservative religious sect. And there on the road between Jerusalem and Damascus, he came in contact with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a midlife crisis. He realized that he was nothing and everything he thought himself to be was nothing. He thought that he was perfect according to the law. He thought that he had everything going for him. And in that second, all that came crashing down. And what did he do? He mourned over it. And it changed his entire assertive, commanding, demanding Saul of Tarsus. His name even changed to Paul. You know, there's an interesting change there. Saul means one who is desired. Paul means little. Interesting. There's a shift. And then he began to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not a righteousness of himself. He said, I seek not righteousness of myself by the law, but a righteousness which comes from Christ in the book of Galatians. A, a total transformation took place in this one who used to be a commanding, assertive person who was going to destroy anyone who followed the way of Jesus of Nazareth, and now he becomes a promoter of that way. But it began in this crisis you know what I find with Christians? A lot of times we want to jump in and fix people's crises too quickly. I don't think we should try to come in and fix it so quickly. When we have a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member who's going through a crisis and they're experiencing for the first time a poverty of spirit and they're going through this and we want to come in and fix it and repair it and try and make it okay and especially parents have this with kids. And you know the best thing that you can do sometimes in that situation is step back and point them to Jesus because he's the only one who can comfort their crisis. When you meet someone and you're talking with them and then you ask them, how are things going? And they say, things aren't going really well. The first thing you should do is say, hey, why don't you come with me to the rock this Wednesday night? When they say, things aren't going well. Don't try to fix it. Because God is trying to do something in their lives. And so after this person goes through this place of poverty of spirit and mourning over it and meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then God begins to do a transformational work in them. The next verse says, blessed are the merciful. He changes them like he changed Saul of Tarsus into a merciful individual, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The problem is, is in a world that is going this way, when you begin to make this change and go this way, what's going to happen to that person that is so incredibly different from the norm of the world? Well, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The world won't like it. We don't like things that are different. And so we persecute those things that are different. Today, persecution is higher against the church than at any other time in history. We don't experience it here, but we see it happening in the Middle East. We see it happening in various places in Africa, all over the world. And so blessed are the, those who are persecuted. Well, we know that that's not a happy experience to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. For, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He brings us back to that acknowledgement. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Have you ever had someone speak against you because you're a follower of Jesus? You will if you haven't. Blessed are you. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Not this world, in heaven. 
For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are to be in this world as a Christian a salting agent, not an assaulting agent. There is a difference. <laughs> a salting agent brings flavor, brings preservation. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is different from that which it seasons. That's why it brings out the flavor of that which it is seasoning. You and I need to be different than the world that we're in. And if we're not different, if it's not clear that there's a difference, well, what good is that salt for other than to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men? You are the light to the world, a world in total darkness. And a city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a lampstand. Um, put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, <coughs> pardon me, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Point number four, last point. The difficult means we endure are for the ends of God's glory. The difficult means that we endure are for the ends of God's glory. You see, whether you're a follower of Jesus today or not, you're gonna go through hard things. Christians experience hard things. Non-Christians experience difficult things. We go through difficult things. But we become a light to a dark world and a salting agent to a world without flavor when the non-follower of Jesus looks at our life and they see the glory of Christ coming from us in the midst of that trial. I'm not perfect at this, and neither are you, and I'm asking God to help me to be better at this, that I glorify him in the midst of troubling circumstances, but I am learning this important lesson, that when I come into those troubling circumstances, I'm learning to begin to pray, God, how do you want to glorify yourself through this? And in that question is this simple acknowledgement that, God, you want to glorify yourself through this. And so Jesus wants to shift my focus your focus, our focus. We only see what we're looking for, but he wants to change what we're looking for in this world. Everybody in this world is looking for something to come from this world to make them happy. And Jesus says, it's the kingdom of God. It's glory in his presence. It's a reward beyond what you can imagine there and another time. It's not this world. So he needs to adjust my focus and your focus on a regular basis because we cut out a focus. And he wants us to see that the focus needs to be on the ends rather than the means. And this means, this life is just a means to the end of being with him. Amen. And in the midst of this life, when crummy circumstances come to us, he wants us to understand that it's in that that he wants to glorify himself. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here today that, that we would show forth your glory Clean up the mirrors that need to focus that light in our lives. If there's anything that's just on it that needs to be removed, Lord, make it so that we shine brightly for you and change our focus this week. We pray this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus and all those that agree said, amen. amen. Would you stand with me as we worship the Lord? You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.